Welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the U.S. Today, we'll be sharing advice on how to approach concussion patients in a primary care setting. Here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Dr. Deepan Kar. Hi, I'm Dr. Vrinder Rindaba. I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. And I'm Dr. Amrit Bilkoot. So uh, we want to start off some of our episodes now with another new segment that's called What's New in the Optometry World? Rav? So this February, FDA actually approved this new contact lens by Cooper Vision. It's called the Biofinity Toric Multifocal Contact Lens. It will be available in the U.S. hopefully by the summer. Not sure how it's going to work out with the whole COVID thing, COVID-19 happening. Oh, Yeah. But hopefully this summer or fall and um, shortly in Canada after. So going back to that soft contact on podcast we did uh, a couple of episodes ago, we mentioned Cooper Vision being the only one that offered still up to 575. And the Torque Multifocal that they have is called a ProClear, but the DK value was only 28. So this new contact lens will have a DK of 128. So it's a pretty big improvement. Cool. Yeah. As my vision therapy residency is almost at an end, I wanted to share all of the amazing info that I learned about managing concussion patients with you guys. So today, we'll be going over information and tips on how to approach concussion management for all you guys working in more of a primary care setting and knowing how to refer your patient to other healthcare professionals for further management. So because our episode today is about concussion, uh, we do want to clarify that concussion is a term that's under the acquired brain injury umbrella. So ABI is an umbrella term and refers to any damage to the brain that occurs after birth and is not related to a congenital or a degenerative disease. There are two types of ABI, non-traumatic, which includes strokes, aneurysms, seizures, and substance abuse. The second kind um, involves traumatic ABI, and this involves car accidents, falls, sport injuries, and shaken baby syndrome. So concussions are often the cause of traumatic ABIs. And then from the Canadian Journal of Optometry, at least 200,000 TBI cases in Canada um, occur every year. And the leading cause of TBIs that result in hospital admission is falls, um, which I really think probably includes the elderly, um, followed by car accidents, then collision-related events, and assaults. Yeah, I mean, those facts definitely apply to not just Canada, but the U.S. as well. Because I think from in the U.S., they also say that falls are the number one cause of concussion so yeah I agree with you Deepon I feel like the elderly population is definitely one that we yeah, have to pay close attention to for those for that percentage yeah. it's up to about like 50 percent of the concussions yeah. what I found interesting is that Deepon shared concussion risk factors yeah so I was kind of wondering when we were discussing doing this episode is who would be more susceptible to getting a concussion versus somebody else and the first thing we think of is uh, people participating in high impact sports. But I think it's also really important to think about people who've had prior concussions 
or who have a history of migraines or learning disabilities and even mental health um, disorders. And, you know, if some people don't have the right coping mechanisms or the right support systems, and if they, you know, do end up getting a head injury, they can be more prone to concussions as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I did not, I did not think of those risk factors. Mm -hmm. And I know, so I played basketball with a girl that she had four concussions. And if she had another one, she couldn't play basketball anymore. She was told that, like, she should stop. And then I was coaching at the time that one of the boys on the boys team had to stop playing basketball because he had x amount of concussions when he was playing football yeah so not only did he have to stop playing basketball and football but he went from possibly being able to play in college to to not being able to play at all yeah and there's a lot of mental um it's a lot of stress right right yeah it's a i mean it's a stressful situation going from being able to play something for a long time and then all of a sudden it stops So um, when you have concussion patients entering your primary care type setting, it's really important to know what the most common visual symptoms would be that are experienced by concussion patients because most of the time these patients won't really tell you that they're experiencing them because they think it's just part of their normal life or They've just had those symptoms for so many years and no one else has ever addressed them. So they're just living with them and just saying, well, I'm going to deal with it. But as optometrists, it's really important for us to know what the common symptoms are to identify the underlying condition for those symptoms. Yeah. And I just want to add to what Amrit was saying is um, concussions are mainly a clinical diagnosis. So where identification of the underlying problem solely falls on to the signs and symptoms that they decide to reveal at the eye exam and their medical history. So like laboratory examinations and medical imaging like MRIs and CT scans will usually come back normal, which can make concussions really tricky and difficult to Mm -hmm. fully diagnose. Yeah. What we do in our practice is we ask about hobbies and if they like to do sports and what sports and if they ever had any injuries from those sports. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes they don't really think of different situations. They'll just be like, no, I don't play sports or I've never been in a car and, you know, I've never had a big fall where I've been hospitalized. But we'll ask the patient, like, have you ever – hit your head on like even a kitchen cabinet you know sometimes you leave that cabinet door open and you just turn and you smack your head or getting into the car have you hit your head on the top of the car door when you're trying to get in or out have you hit your head on a table if you've been underneath a table trying to grab something and then they'll be like oh yeah I do that every day and then, yeah, and then yeah, we're I'm like, like, okay, have a concussion right now. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I mean, but but definitely, right? I mean, some people can have concussion from like just a mild hit, and you'll never know unless you ask those questions. So yeah, it's really important to like pry that information out of them. Some common symptoms that you might see from your patients is difficulty focusing, um, basically fluctuating vision, and also diplopia, eye fatigue some ocular motor dysfunction um, where they lose their place while reading or they're having trouble driving can be a problem. And then feeling visually overwhelmed in crowded or fast-paced environments. So that one, 
a really common complaint that I have from my uh, concussion or just ABI patients in general with feeling visually overwhelmed, a really great scenario to ask your patient is, do you feel overwhelmed when you're going grocery shopping, looking at all of the options on the shelves? And most of the time, the patients will go like, oh my God, I don't even grocery shop anymore because of that. And and they don't realize that that's from their concussion. Um, or, you know, do you can you cross the street while watching busy, you know, fast paced cars driving by? Well, I guess that would even would that include like when they're in a car? Yeah. And if they're a passenger, they're just watching yeah. other cars drive by or trees yeah. go by. So that can cause some nausea or. Yeah. A lot of motion sensitivity or just a lot of mm-hmm. things in front of them visually. So patients can have extreme light sensitivity or to all senses, which can include hearing, touch, taste. I had a really interesting patient that um, highlighter colors like yellow highlighters or neon green. She gets completely nauseous. She shuts her eyes. She can't even look at it and she feels like throwing up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also their so their light sensitivity will often be with no sort of corneal findings, um, no anterior chamber reaction, so no signs of inflammation. So this will just be light sensitivity strictly due to the concussion. Um, patients can also have some balance problems, some dry eye symptoms, and headaches. The biggest ones there are often the double vision, fluctuating vision at near, um, or just blurry vision at near, and then frequently losing place when reading or just difficulty with visual tracking in general and out of all of the just all of the types of articles that review the common visual symptoms in concussion patients um, all of those articles claim that you know up to like 90 percent of these tbi or concussion patients can suffer from one or many of these symptoms it's hard to think that well if someone just has double vision should i just ask if they have a concussion right away um, but if your patient comes into your chair and you you have no history of concussion, but they start to list all of these things and many of them, that might trigger you to think, okay, maybe I need to ask if they've had a concussion. Based on all of those visual symptoms that we just described, there are ways um, that you can adjust your exam room and your testing methods for these specific patients to make them feel more comfortable and for you to get a more efficient exam um, with more efficient test results. These are the things that I would recommend. Decrease your visual clutter. Try your best to just keep your equipment hidden in your drawers and just clear out everything that's on your table or your countertops um, so that they don't get overwhelmed. Always give full instructions to your patient before performing the test so that they fully understand what's going on and repeat any instructions if needed. This is really important because we did not mention in the common visual symptoms um, that visual perceptual skills are also quite affected from concussion, meaning that most patients will experience reduced processing speed in general and reduced response times. So if you say instructions to a test very quickly, they might not have time to process that. Adding on to that, um, just try to perform some of your tests um, slower than usual. And then lastly, because most of them are often light sensitive, it's nice to dim the lights in the room anyways. 
Uh, do you guys already do all of your exams with like the lights dimmed? Yeah. I just do it for my foot lamp exam. I'll dim it. But for everything else, I'll have it fully on. Yeah, me too. My exam room lights are always fully on. So um, sometimes after I don't have a dimmer. So it's either they're on or they're off. So I'll have to ask my yeah, patient. Yeah, we just recently got a dimmer. Oh, so nice. I understand. Yeah. yeah so we, I, it's either on yeah, or off. So yeah, so I, I have it. to ask my patient I'm sometimes, like, is it okay? Do you want me to just turn them all the way off? And they're like, yes, please. And I'm like, all right, I'll just find my way around. <laughs> um, the next topic in our episode is recommendations on tests that you can implement in your primary care exam to identify the visual disorders that are related to concussion. So these are mostly going to be things that you guys already do in your primary care setting every day. However, for these patients, you might want to add maybe one or two more tests and you definitely have to add more time. So the first thing um, would be obviously case history. So we already mentioned, you know, um, if patients don't tell you that they've had a concussion or they don't know you're definitely gonna have to spend more time um, asking those questions to try to get something out of them and when you do know that they have a concussion the case history should be very detailed um, you want to get details of the injury itself when was the injury where on the head were they hit did they have a loss of consciousness or not um, were their symptoms immediate or later on um, did their symptoms get worse or have they been stable? Did they have any prior treatments? So did they have physical therapy? Did they have any vestibular therapy? Um, did they have any neuroimaging? So what did the CT scan say? What did the MRI scan say? Um, are they seeing a neurologist or any other healthcare provider regularly? Um, so those are really important questions to ask so you can get a picture of the whole patient. Um, and what's really important to consider is possibly the Convergence Insufficiency Symptom Survey, so the CISS, or the Brain Injury Vision Symptom Survey, which you can find on Nora's website, um, the BIVSS. Those are really great symptom surveys that ask them a lot of questions, um, pretty much of the visual symptoms that we already went through. Um, and so based on those numbers, you can kind of manage their symptoms over time, which would be really great too. So when I was like looking up some, some of these surveys, um, this COVD quality of life survey kept on popping up. Is that still something that primary care optometrists can consider as another option? Yeah. There's no standard of care for surveys when you're asking about symptoms. Just like for anything, I feel like even with dry eye, there's so many symptoms, um, symptom surveys that you can choose. I think just choose the one that fits your clinic the best. Um, the COVD quality of life is really great because it does attract more primary care settings. Um, I feel like it all depends on how much time you have with that patient. Do you want to give them a longer survey that they can fill out while they're maybe dilating or before they come into your office because then it's more detailed or do you just want like a five question screener you know while they're sitting in your chair so I don't think any survey would be a bad survey just pick the one that you can use consistently in your office each time and that you can interpret the best yeah okay the last thing that I want to mention about case history, this is something that I ask all of my patients when they come in because they have a lot of symptoms, a lot of issues, and a lot of things going on with their eyes. So I always ask them, 
if you can fix only two to three things about your eyes, what do you want it to be? And this really gets them to think about priority. So that's a really good question to ask because you can get the patient to be more precise and you can make the decision if these goals can even be met by your exam and your management and your scope of practice. I think whatever um, symptom, like once you get into case history at that point, you feel like you've diagnosed a concussion and any symptom that um, your patient has talked about, um, you should really need to probe further into that symptom and ask when it's happening, like mm-hmm. where it's happening, yeah. et cetera. So yeah, that's just really important to ask those further follow-up questions, just like what Amrit was saying before. And so testing, like I said, it's pretty similar to primary care. So NPC is probably one of the biggest ones for con- for concussion patients um, because convergence insufficiency is the most common binocular vision disorder in all TBI patients. Um, and then beside that is accommodative insufficiency and then ocular motor dysfunction. So if they sound symptomatic for CI and their NPC is normal, you might want to actually use a pen light because then we're removing accommodation as the stimulus, um, or even put some red-green glasses on them to really dissociate their eyes and make their fusion status a little bit worse and see, you know, when their eyes are under stress, does the NPC get much worse? But um, interesting fact, I currently do have a VT patient who's had a TBI and her NPC was greater than five feet, even with prism correction. Um, But yeah, so NPC is really important because it'll be pretty receded most of the time. That's good to know. I think for us primary care optometrists, that's like... I know. I can't even (laughs) think of that. I'm just like... I don't even start my NPC that far away. (laughs) I know. I'm like, oh my God, what's happening? (laughs) At that point, it's not even near point convergence. That's like far point convergence for me. (laughs) I know. Because CI is a common disorder, just make sure you really also pay attention to your vergence ranges um, at near, you know, for base in, base out. I I do everything in free space, so I don't do the vergences or accommodation in the phoropter. I do it all out of phoropter. Um, That's just because my patients get pretty sensitive to instruments in front of their face. So I do everything in free space. And you could visualize things better in free space as well. Yeah. You could you see their mm-hmm. eye movements and stuff mm-hmm. yeah. better than infraopter. Yeah. So yeah, I like doing it in free space as well. Yeah. Um, I won't go into cover test in detail or versions testing because we do have a future episode on uh, diagnostic approaches to binocular diplopia. So, um, but definitely go slow and double check your cover test as well, especially if they complain of any um, intermittent or constant diplopia. Um, and then motility testing. So this is something that probably nobody really does in primary care, but it can be done pretty quickly um, as a good screener for any ocular motor dysfunction. And so this includes your uh, pursuits, saccades, fixation, things like that. I usually follow the Ensuco ocular motor testing methods. So um, you can find that online and it just gives you a really good idea as to like what they're tracking eye movements are like if they're having difficulty reading and things like that which is um, pretty important for these patients Um, another test that you can implement in primary care but it's not often done anyways is DEM DEM is a really straightforward 
um, screening test. It's also going to identify a lot of ocular motility dysfunction and difficulty with tracking, especially especially reading related eye movements. DEM is the one with the vertical and horizontal numbers, yeah, right? Yeah, the developmental okay. eye movement test. So it has the two okay. vertical subtests and then that horizontal subtest as the last one. Um, checking amps in free space will be a really good idea. So you can do monocular pull-away amps um, because accommodative insufficiency is another common disorder. Um, if you have time to do MEM, that's a good way to confirm if they have accommodative spasm or accommodative leg. And then flippers. Flippers are a really good option too if you implement that in your practice. Um, I would recommend using plus minus two flippers for anyone under the age of 14 and then plus minus 150 for anyone older and who's not um, presbyopic yet. Before you start this next one, I was going to ask, is push-up less accurate than pull-away or which one would you recommend doing? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. Um, pull away is what I would personally recommend. So it, it all depends on your patient, but um, pull away has a little bit more reliability because you start off very close to the eye, so it's always going to be blurry. And then as you slowly start to pull away the accommodative target, um, the patient can only tell you what the answer is once it's clear because they don't they don't know what it is. They're just going to keep guessing especially your younger kids or adults that you just don't trust. <laughs> so um, push, um, push up amps, if you're starting at arm's length or farther away, they already know what it is. So when you tell them, tell me when it's blurry. I mean, the, the five-year-old's going to just say, oh, it's clear. And you're literally touching his cornea all the way through. <laughs> so it's, it's not <laughs> as reliable. <laughs> No, it's true. But I could just see you like pushing it in their eye. They're like, really? It's not blurry. They're like, it's five. <laughs> but even with adults, I mean, some you might have a patient who really wants to just say the right answer, right? You, you, I'm sure we've all had those patients that want to say the right thing all the time. So yeah, pull away. Pull away is definitely more reliable in my opinion. Um, yeah, contrast sensitivity, I won't go into much detail because it's probably not implemented in a lot of primary care offices, but if you really want to dedicate a little bit of money for a contrast sensitivity test, I personally use the MARS test, um, but there are other types of contrast sensitivity um, measurements that you can get. It just gives you an idea of how the patient perceives objects in the real world versus like using a standard black and white acuity chart. And that can also um, tell you if we need to maybe change their lighting environments at home or introduce any sort of colored tints if their sensitivity is down. The last two points, because I know I've been talking a lot. Um, so obviously, if the patient has had tra history of a traumatic incident, um, just remember to think about maybe gonio testing on slit lamp um, to, and make sure you assess for any TIDs. Um, and then in the posterior pole, look for any retinal breaks, degeneration, possibly optic nerve head pallor. And you might want to consider taking fundus photo to document um, and monitor for any optic nerve pallor as well. And then with that optic nerve pallor or with any injury can come visual field defects as well. So consider um, getting your patient a Humphrey field um, if that's what you have in your office. Um, what I would recommend is consider a referral out to an office that does perform Goldman um, perimetry 
or the, the manual visual field testing, as we mentioned before, these patients tend to have reduced visual processing speed and slower response times. So the Humphrey field is an automatic one that does not wait for the patient. It just keeps flashing the lights. So it might go too fast for them. Um, so if you do a Humphrey field, just take their results maybe with a grain of salt because um, they might not give you the best results that they that they can. And then um, also with the TBIs, can't forget your posterior health as well. Like you can also get like croidal rupture. That's one of the biggest thing. Um, on Instagram, Retina Rocks posted a case on their post. Um, and it was somebody that just had a fall and they had uh, traumatic subretinal and suprachoidal hemorrhage. I think that was very interesting to kind of look into. I've actually had um, a patient that had CSR following a car accident. Oh. Yeah. That's another thing to look out for. So next, let's kind of talk about how to treat these patients. So you always want to consider treatment at earliest. A lot of the literature has shown that you do not want to wait to start the treatment. You want to start it as soon as possible. And there's been um, a lot of studies that show that the neuroplasticity of the brain is still ongoing. So patients can always benefit from treatment of concussion even after several years following the injury. When you're starting the treatment for these patients, first of all, you always want to start with the best corrected um, prescription. And sometimes even a small prescription can make a big difference. So always kind of trial frame the prescription you get to make sure that they are able to adapt to the changes. Um, also be a little bit cautious of if you if a patient has experienced increased myopia. Uh, sometimes that could be that myopic shift that is just an overacting accommodative system. So cycle them. Um, Even those pre-presbyopic or early presbyopes, if they're showing symptoms of accommodative dysfunction or a myopic shift, um, you would still possibly want to consider cyclo sometimes. Yeah. And then also for your older adults, like all, consider having a separate pair of distance glasses and near glasses because a lot of these patients won't do well with their progresses. So also you want to kind of discuss with your patients about passive versus active treatment options you know you want to always educate them all the treatment options that's available to them and then let them make the decision a lot of patients who are not that motivated so kind of leaning towards the prism and plus lenses it's probably a better option for them so that's the passive treatment that we're talking about and then vt that's the active treatment that we're talking about so you know you that's kind of like the gold standard you want to refer all your patients to VT so that we can kind of have a more uh, structured treatment for them. It's a yeah. more personalized treatment for them. That's like perfect what you said, Rav. Like vision therapy is very um, individualized for the patient. And I think I stress vision therapy as well because um, ocular motility dysfunction will not often be addressed with the prism and the plus lenses. Um, that is often more treated with vision therapy. So that's a really great option for every concussion patient. However, you know, it's unfortunate if they're not able to financially afford that or physically endure um, vision therapy, but it's definitely an option that I would throw out to every patient and let them know that that is available for them. At this point, it's just 
important for them to develop um, the necessary skills they need to use their eyes accurately and efficiently if they have these ocular motility issues. I mean, I was going to say, too, that I had a patient, She and I kind of talked about the different options she had, and she was more scared that her glasses would look different, even though I sat there and I explained it to her. That her glasses would yeah. look basically Oh, like the same. with prism? With prism, yeah. yeah. She was, like, so nervous that she's like, nope, I'm going to do pencil push-ups. I'm going to do those. I'd rather do that instead of doing prism. Like, no matter – I mean, which is – I was great, you know, I was happy with. But it was just funny because her grandma wanted her to try the prism. Yeah. And she's like, no. Yeah. I will not. So uh, for your CIs and your AI patients, you want to give them their best correction um, and then – possibly adding an ad or a prism so for the ad you probably want to give them somewhere around from plus 75 to one diopter starting and just kind of like trialing from there to see what they're most comfortable with also kind of giving a low base in prisms can gently enhance the peripheral awareness while also helping them with their ci symptoms i think for prescribing prism um, we can also do an episode on that one day because I think a lot of people just have different questions on how to prescribe. I think for me in general, I take a look at what their cover test is. So are we prescribing this prism for their distance glasses for near or both? Because if their cover test is different in both distance and near, then their prism won't be effective for the opposite. Um, But in general, I would start with the amount of prism that um, is a little bit less than their their posture or their deviation and then about think about their um like npc like was it really terrible or was it just a little bit receded because then that gives you an indication of when to how to how low to start or how high you expect to go because you also don't want to over prescribe them i guess this is a really important question too so someone who's had a concussion how big of a exophoria are we expecting for someone that would be a CI, I guess. Like, yeah. so from someone that doesn't have mm-hmm. um, a large exophoria or it's very, very minimal, like, I don't know, under four, would it just jump to like a 10 or a 14? A concussion would not increase an ocular deviation unless there's a nerve palsy or a mechanical restriction. So your phoria okay. post or your phoric posture, whatever you have, that's with you always, right? So, okay. Um, what could happen is that a patient just had a really good fusion. Like for me, example, I'm a what, like 25 exophoria at near, but I can fuse and have single vision all the time. So you don't see that for you, but the concussion can definitely decompensate that. Okay. For your light sensitive patients, you, um, especially those who are spending a lot of time on the computer for work or school, you will want to probably consider a mild tint for them. So trial these tints before prescribing them and kind of let them walk around your office to kind of get the real world stimulation. To make your own tint sample, you can simply purchase these empty flipper holders and send them to the lab requesting the specific tints and percentages. I actually didn't know that. So this is actually only true in the States. Oh. Um, so you can order um, FL41 with different percentages for tints. But the thing is, in Canada, you can't because they're just not readily available in Canadian optical dispensaries. They can only be purchased online in Canada, but you don't want to do that because you can't 
sample them, right? Or you can't trial them. So you don't really know what the patient is getting. Um, so that's why blue light filter lenses might be a alternative option for these patients because those kind of tints are so much more uh, popular in Canadian opticals. I was going to add to that because so the FL41, it's a specific rose tint, but um, even if that's only available in the U.S., I mean, a rose colored tint should be available in Canada in general. And what I do with my patients is I often take three lens trials of tints that are three different colors and they can be random. I'll pick like a green tint, a blue, and then a pink. And they'll be at 50% tint each one. And I just have them walk into the optical at our clinic because it's super busy. So I want them to be in an environment that's a little bit more overwhelming. And I have them just put the tint each time over one eye and I ask them, how do you feel when you're looking through the lens? And I, I kid you not, every single one of my patients so far have had a really positive response to some certain color and they're always different. So I don't have so a... So there's not one tint yeah, popular. Yeah, I've other. had okay. a person respond positively to a 50% blue, a rose and a green and a brown. So like they're all different. Um, once they've picked one color, I only give them three options and then I say pick one. Once once they like a color, then I show them different percentages of that color. So I'll show them the 50%, like a 25 and then a 10%. And then that's it. Okay. I do say whenever I have a yellow tint, like with shooting glasses or like working outside glasses, I get angry. Right? <laughs> yellow tint. Like I have this like this emotional response of anger and I'm like, I need the yeah. glasses. <laughs> After you prescribe your patients the glasses with the, either the prism or the ad, you do want to see your patient about in a month to when they get their glasses and then if your patients are not still improving after a month of wearing those glasses then it's I think time to refer them out to a VT specialist if they haven't been already referred out and then for any ocular health diagnosis you kind of want to follow up accordingly for monitoring. So it's just really important for primary care optometrists to collaborate with their medical community when it comes to TBI and concussion patients. It's so important for optometrists to remember that ABIs are serious conditions. Patients in general need a well-rounded treatment. So that means VT optometrists or also known as uh, neurooptometrists, um, physical therapists to help with balance problems, neurologists for memory issues, uh, occupational therapists, speech and language therapists for yeah cognitive issues, um, psychiatrists or psychologists for um, depression or anxiety, um, and there's so much more. So um, encourage other doctors in your area to refer to your practice to manage visual symptoms for these patients, but also collaborate with them um, with uh, a lot of the symptoms they're experiencing. Super important. And um, so the Nora website, the Neuro Optometric Rehabilitation Association, um, they have really great printouts for patient education and for healthcare professionals to have those pamphlets and printouts in their primary care office that explains why optometric management for head injuries is so important. So I think those are really cool free resources that you guys can take a look at. Take a look at websites for referrals to any neuro optometrists on the COVD website, Nora, 
International Sports Vision Association, and the Optometric Extension Program Foundation. And then I just wanted to throw out a really interesting topic that um, is happening in the area of concussion research right now. In about the last couple of years, um, researchers have been looking at the association of blood biomarkers in concussion patients. And so the potential, so should blood-based biomarkers for concussion be validated and become widely available, they could play many roles in the management for concussion. So based on the review article, um, Potential Blood-Based Biomarkers for Concussion by Linda Papa in the um, Sports Medicine Journal, uh, some of the biomarkers can be found in the blood serum up to like three months post-injury. Uh, many of them can spike within hours to a few days after the injury, but some of them can last even longer, up to a couple of months. So um, overall, like the biomarkers have a really good potential to diagnose and manage concussion, especially like in athletes, um, as in the article, it states that this group of um, athletes tend to underreport symptoms so that they can stay in the game and continue playing. So the biomarkers will be a more objective way to manage their concussion and the severity of the concussion rather than relying on their subjective symptoms like with surveys and like the King, the King DVIC test and things like that. Is the point of care test like a prick test where they draw blood or what is, what is yeah, it I, I think they're planning to implement any sort of test that might draw some blood um, at the point of injury so that they can detect you know are there any proteins in there um, they also want to do this in patients um, or um, athletes that have had a history of concussion before to assess their risk um, of getting a concussion again so Alex kind of what you were saying about um, your friend who's had repeated concussions before, um, if they were able to do a blood test and see how many of these biomarkers are present, um, they can kind of get a sense of, you know, how much at risk are you of getting another concussion based on the number of blood biomarkers that are present. And then also it's a potential for research in treatment of concussion. So if these proteins are developing in the blood, Maybe we can develop some sort of treatment in the future that that targets these proteins um, for the healing process. So, yeah, I just thought that was pretty cool. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Four Eyes. Make sure to subscribe and look out for new episodes every Wednesday. And make sure to follow us on Instagram at Four Eyes Optum. Until then, stay tuned.